Well, church, we're going through this little book called Jude, the next to last book of the Bible. Um, he's writing to a group of people in the early church. He's the half-brother of Jesus, and there's been some libertines in the area of sensuality that have come in the side door and have led many astray. So he's writing to correct the church, to encourage the church, to contend for the faith. Listen to the passage we'll be dealing with primarily this morning. I'm starting in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloom of darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, verse 8, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And then verse 12 and 13. Now these are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. May God bless to our understanding this word. In the year 1986, there was a man named Mark Marty who was the editor of the Christian Century magazine, which was a kind of a, a liberal magazine. And he, he said this in an editorial. He said that the, the, the passing of hell from the modern consciousness of American Christians is one of the major, if still largely undocumented, trends of our day, the passing of hell from our consciousness. The same year, the editor of Christianity Today, a man named Ken Concer, who had a distinguished career at Trinity Evangelical School in Deerfield, said the following. He said, I have not heard a sermon on hell in 30 years. John Frame has written a systematic theology that is a doorstopper. It's 1,200 pages. And on page 1,081, this is what John Frame from Reformed Seminary says. He says, if I were free to invent my own religion, I can assure you that eternal punishment would not be part of it. Well, I look at this passage, and I can't get away from the concept of the eternal. The eternal. The eternal. He talks about an angelic revolt in the heavenlies where the angels left their proper positions and they rebelled against the leadership of God. And, and he says this, that, 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 that he has kept them in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. In other words, that they're in this giant holding cell, this prison 
under eternal chains until the judgment of the great day, the great day of judgment. And he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and their indulgence in sexual immorality and pursuing unnatural desires. And he says this, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Eternal. You go to verse 13, and he has this building phrase upon phrase upon phrase to discuss and describe these false teachers. And then he says this, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I, I get that. There, there are degrees of gloom and darkness in judgment, and utter darkness is for these false teachers. Ah, you can't get away from it. That's, we have a little phrase we're trying to work on internally that says, helping broken people treasure Jesus. And as we understand our brokenness and our need for a Savior, we worship and we treasure, we love Jesus. And out of that, we say, how can we keep that spirit going? We talk about four values that we want to think about continuously. And one is the authority of the Bible. Number two is the importance of community and relationship and the family. Number three is serving each other and serving our community and serving the world around us, primarily by communicating Christ. And number four is making disciples. But I'm dealing with the concept of biblical authority. And as you deal with biblical authority, you, you, you just deal with these issues. That's why I believe. I believe in the importance of preaching through books of the Bible or major sections of major books because you deal with themes that you wouldn't normally run to. This is going to be a hard sermon. In fact, if you tell me after this sermon, I really enjoyed that sermon, you were not listening. You're not, it's, it's, just, it's, it's, just, it's just going to be a hard sermon and because we're going to deal with the eternal nature of, of, of judgment. You just can't get away from it. Listen, John 3, 16. We, we love that passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. You see, eternal. Then verse 18. Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does believe, excuse me, listen. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's very clear. You either believe or you don't. You're either judged or you're not judged. Verse 36, same chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Eternal. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So if some of our confessional statements, the Baptist faith, the message that we hold to, it says this in part. It talks about eternal judgment. It says that the unrighteous will be consigned to hell the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous, or those who know Christ, in their resurrection and glorified bodies will receive their reward and dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 33, article 2, says that unbelievers shall be cast into eternal torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power, eternal, ongoing, unrelenting. So th this past week, 
my grandchildren from California were here. The oldest is almost six. And so I was reading him a little book that's kind of the children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. And it's a wonderful little book for children. And one chapter deals with going to the celestial city or going to heaven or, and avoiding judgment. And so he started asking me about judgment and what judgment is. And he asked me, he said, what is, and I said, well, you come to Jesus by faith and you go to heaven. And when you die, but if you don't, if you don't know him or you are disobedient, you go to a place of judgment called hell. He says, what is hell like? And I tried to describe it and typed in hell on my iPad and pulled it up and it showed flames and fiery things. And he kind of got the concept and I could see that his wheels were moving. And so the next day, we're walking through the house and my mother-in-law is with us this week and she's watching The Crown, which is a wonderful show about really the royal family and Queen Elizabeth and you really like Queen Elizabeth and everybody else is dysfunctional, but she's really pretty good. But this is a good show. But, but, but we're walking through, the, just walking through the den and she's watching The Crown and it's, the, it's this episode in 1952, there was what they called uh, the smog or the fog that there was a weather system that came down in December and it was exceptionally cold. And so the weather system trapped everything. Everybody burnt coal to heat their houses and 4,000 to 12,000 people in London died because of respiratory failure. It was a horrible experience. It lasted five days. It's called the fog of 1952. And that's part of the show. And it just, as we walked through the door, it showed fog and people kind of struggling to breathe in London. And my, my grandson said, Papa, is that hell? I said, no, it's London, you know. And uh, we kind of walked out, and as I reflected on it later, I didn't have a chance to go back. I I could have said, you know, that's a horrible event. But it is a picture of aspects of eternal judgment, except it doesn't last five days. It lasts forever. So this is is what we're talking about. So, So I want you to hear this. The reality of hell arrests our attention and causes us to think, but only the cross melts my obstinate heart. So the the hell arrests my attention and causes me to think soberly, but only the cross and the glory and mercy of the cross melts my obstinate heart. Um, We are saved by judgment. We are saved because the judgment that should have fallen upon you fell upon Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I'm going to look at this text and give you three principles and one application. The first is this. We are told in the beginning part of this book to contend for the faith or to struggle for the faith or, or to think deeply and make application of the faith that is once for all been delivered to the saints. We have it here. We're to contend for the faith in part because the Bible teaches that the only way to be made right with a holy, holy, holy God is through the work of Jesus on the cross for our sins. In Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 13 and 14, Jesus says this. He says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction destruction. 
and many, many find it. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So he says, he says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the road and broad is the gate that leads to destruction. See, destruction, and many find it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and, and a few find it. So, so we believe the only way to be saved is through the narrow road whose name is Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, some untutored, untrained fishermen have the audacity to speak and about Jesus, and they're called before the authorities, and they command them to never teach again in that name. And this is what Peter says in verse 11 of Acts 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, by you leaders of the Jewish people. He was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He says that there's only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and it is the name Jesus so we contend because Christ is the way to faith. And so you look at the book of Jude, verse 1 says, you are kept by or for Jesus, guarded, safely watched over. But if you reject him, verse 5, you face destruction from Jesus. So, so either he is keeping you or there will be destruction. That's the gospel. So we are to contend in part because there will always be teachers in the church that will try to deceive God's people. We know that from Acts 20. We know that from this book. They'll come in through the side door. They're surreptitiously crept in to deceive the people of God. We contend because eternity is at stake. He, he describes these false teachers with piling metaphor after metaphor after metaphor. Listen, he describes them as, as, as they are hidden reefs. You hit them with your ship, and your ship is destroyed, and you die at sea. They're, they're hidden reefs. They are shepherds who feed only themselves. They are waterless clouds swept along by the winds. They are fruitless trees uprooted and destroyed. They are wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame. They are wandering stars. I mean, either, either Jude is a mean-spirited, angry God that's just out to get people, or he is the apostle of Jesus who's saying, be very careful. Be very careful what you hear, what you believe, because eternity is at stake. So we contend because of eternity. In Matthew chapter 10, there's a statement about where Jesus says, don't, don't fear the people who will speak ill of you. He um, says, verse 26, have no fear of them. And then Later he says, this passage that is such a dear passage, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the knowledge of your heavenly Father, but even the hairs of your head are numbered? Therefore, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. No, no fear, no fear. The hairs of your head are numbered. But it tells about a different fear. Right before that golden passage is verse 28. It says this. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
rather fear him or reverence him, adore him, worship him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We contend because eternity is at stake. Number two, we contend because of the sobering reality of the gospel and life. I, uh, I want you to get this. So if you looked at your coworkers, neighbors, friends, family members who are unchurched, don't know Christ, and, and you say, you know, I, I, want, I want these people to come to faith in Christ because I believe, I do believe this, because I believe there's a flourishing under the banner of Jesus. I believe the, ways, the way from marriage to, to flourish is for the husband and the wife to both seek Jesus. I believe the way that homes can ring with laughter is because Jesus is resident Lord of that family. Uh, I believe that he brings his shalom into our life, which is wellness and well-being and flourishing. I, I believe what Jesus says in John chapter 10, 10, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, abundantly. I believe what Colossians 1 says, that in Christ all things hold together. He goes before all things, and in him all things can, can, can come together. Uh, I believe Proverbs 4 that says that, that the, 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 the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until full day. I believe all these things. And I, I want people to walk in the way of the Lord and to experience that flourishing in this life. But if your motivation is so that people can flourish, if that's your primary motivation only, then they may say, well, you flourish in Jesus. I flourish by doing this thing or that thing or this thing. It's, it's just it's, it's how you find fulfillment. It works for you, good. It doesn't work for me, no big deal. But, but see, if you want people to come to Christ because you understand that apart from the knowledge of Jesus, people spend eternity in hell it takes on a greater sobriety. It takes on a much greater weightiness. I think of First Thessalonians, it says, they report how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who saves us from the coming wrath. Luke 13, Jesus says, they'll be consigned to a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. So, so, so the, the thing about this teaching is that it brings a deep sense of, of sobriety to our spirit. Let me confess to you this morning, in all honesty, I confess that I don't weep enough for people without Christ. I confess that I often go out and I walk through the day and I'll see people and I never stop to think, are they steadfastly marching to hell? I confess that. And I ask, you ask me, where are our tears? Um, so, so, we're in the midst of this pandemic, hopefully behind us, but who knows. And the, New York, the New York Times reported this week that Seoul, Korea has passed an ordinance, a city of 10 million people. And the ordinance goes like this, that if, if, if you're a health club owner, you have to calibrate your treadmill 
machines where you know you walk in place or run in place to not go faster than 3.7 miles per hour. Because if you go faster than that, most people perspire more rapidly and perspiration releases the COVID virus they're saying. So that they have to, they mandate it that you can't have a, any music that is more than 120 beats per, per minute piped into your health club because if you have more than 120 beats per minute, you can't get all outside and jazzed up and you'll sweat more and release. I'm, 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 these things, I'm, I'm not making this up, New York Times. Now, I think it's valid and good and proper to be very careful. I, I think that, 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 that that's very good. And I applaud our health workers who've worked so valiantly. I'm almost 68. So let's say that I avoid COVID and I add three years to my life. So let's say I die at 88 instead of 85. Okay. Thank you for doing that, healthcare workers. I'm, I'm vaccinated, fully vaccinated ready to go. But when you think about 88 years on the scale of eternity, it's a piece of dust. It's a piece of dust. Not diminishing life, importance of life. It's a piece of dust. James says life is a vapor. And not only that, you know, you get to be older. There was a couple in the early service getting married Saturday. I married their parents 30 years ago. That was yesterday, boom. Really, yesterday, boom. That's life. And so I, when I think about eternity, it, it is a, a sobering reality that arrests my attention. There's one of my favorite guys in church history. He's a guy named Adoniram Judson, born in seven. 1788. Judson was raised in a godly home. Um, godly pastor. He was, his biography says he was able to read Latin and Greek at age nine. Not read this stuff, and I, I just take it by faith. I, sometimes I wonder, you know, were they, were they that much smarter in, in, than, than we are now? Or what was it? Anyway, very bright. Went to college at age 16 to what is now Brown University. Got there, he renounced his faith, didn't tell his mom and dad, and there was a, a group called the, the Deists or the Skeptics, and led by a guy named Jacob Eames, who was the upperclassman and very outspoken. And uh, a Deist believes that, that there is a God who made the heavens and the earth because you can't argue about that because you look at creation, look at the miracle of birth, you look at the miracle of life, and you go, wow, there's got to be a supreme creator. But, but, but beyond that, they cannot go. They said, we don't believe in revelation. We believe everything you need to know about God, you intuit that when you die, you just die. There's nothing to it. And he, he bought into that and became part of the skeptic or deist club. And after four years, he goes home and he teaches for a year at a local school. And then he tells his parents, I'm going to go to New York and pursue fame and fortune. And by the way, dad, I have renounced the Christian faith. I'm a deist. And his mom and dad were destroyed. They were weeping over him and pleading with him. He says, I'm, I'm going to New York. And he got on his horse, and to get there from where he lived in Connecticut, he had to stop halfway 
got to the halfway point, he stopped at an inn, he goes inside, he tells the innkeeper, I need a room. The innkeeper says, you know, uh, we're filled except for one room, and it's next to the room of a young man who is, we think, dying. And he says, I've, I've got to take it. I, I've, I've got to take a room. So he, he takes the room. He's laying in bed, and he hears all the, let me read from a book called To the Golden Shore. It's a great little biography. It says, the innkeeper apologized that his sleep might be interrupted because there was a man critically ill in the next room. Throughout the night, he heard comings and goings and low voices and groans and gasps. It bothered him to think that the man next to him may not be prepared to die. He wondered about himself and had terrible thoughts of his own dying. And then he felt foolish because good deists weren't supposed to have these struggles. When he was leaving in the morning, he asked the man, the innkeeper, how the man did in the room next door. And they said, unfortunately, he died early this morning. And then Adoniram Judson, the 21-year-old now young man, said, do you know his name? He says, yes, his name was, he looks up, Eames, Jacob Eames, the head of the Deist Society, his friend. And Judson said that he got on his horse and went back home. He says, every time the horse, who's hit the ground, he said, he heard the innkeeper said, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. He got home talked to his parents, became serious about his faith, and committed his life to Christ. You see, these, these, these things give gravity to your life. Listen to this. You are, if you're a believer in Jesus, there are people in your circles of influence that will never hear of Jesus unless you speak the word to them. You are a solitary voice of the gospel in their lives. Co-workers, neighbors, friends. Mother pulled me aside after the first service and said, I just had an experience a couple years ago that I was in the pool with my fourth grader, fifth grader, and a neighbor was swimming down the fifth grader. And and my son says to me, Mom, why, why is the water blue? And she said, well, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't answer. He says, I know, it's because Jesus made it blue. And his little friend said, who's Jesus? And he said, the mother said, I was thunderstruck. He had, this child had never heard the name Jesus. You think about that. You're the solitary voice. Number three, in this passage, there is a, a sense of, of um, understanding that if we reject the authority of the Bible, we end up in disarray. Look at verse 8. Yet in like manner, like Sodom and Gomorrah, these people, these false teachers also rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. And blaspheme the glorious ones, probably angels who are mediators. They, so, so, so they rely on their dreams. They say, you don't need revelation. We're going to tell you what to believe out of our intuitive sense of what is right and wrong. And this intuitive sense of right and wrong in this potential situation led to sexual excess. And they reject authority, the authority of the Bible, the authority of teachers. They reject authority. So dreams, intuition, defilement of teaching, reject authority. 
blaspheme glorious ones. As I, I thought about this. I thought about us, believers here. And I thought about how, how it'd be, it's, it's easy. It's, it's easy to get into the ditch on the left or the right and to forget the, the, the simple teaching of the gospel. See, you see, I would plead with you to be people of the book and understand there's one major meta-narrative, and that is the gospel of grace. Three acts. Old Testament is act one. God preparing a people of his own possession, calling the Jews out, giving them the sacrificial system that points to the coming of Jesus, the tabernacle that points to the coming of Jesus, the Davidic kingship that would never have an end, pointing to the high king Jesus. The Aaronic priesthood that points to the coming of the high priest whose name is Jesus. The, the Lamb of God whose name is Jesus. So it's all preparation and longing anticipation. And then Act 2 is in the fullness of time. The eternal God was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose victorious over death. He is Lord and King. Act 3 is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church and the worldwide ministry of taking the gospel to all people until he calls history to a close. That's the meta-narrative. That's what we preach and teach. And it's easy to get into the ditch. I said, be people of the book. Love the gospel of grace. I was reading about a man. I heard him for years, but his name is Simon Stylites. He died in 460. So he was a kind of a contemporary of Augustine. Simon Stylites, um, to show that he was devoted to Jesus, had a big pillar built, and for 36 years, he lived on the top of a pillar to show his devotion to Christ. In fact, he called himself a spiritual athlete for Jesus. 36 years. I had to come down occasionally, I know, but 36 years. And he would stand on the top of the thing and he would, he would do exercises. It became, became very flexible. But the story goes, and this is from a book by a guy named Kenneth Scott LaTourette, who was professor of religion, head of the Department of Religion at Yale University for 30 years. So it's not some type of wild, fatuous story. It really happened. So, so on a certain day, he decided to set a record. They didn't have Guinness Book then, but set a record. He was able to take his forehead and touch his feet. I, I can't. If I did that right now, I'd throw something else and you have to call a hospital or whatever. I don't know how he did it, but, but he did it on one day, 1,244 successive times. So you're going through Antioch and you see a big pillar. Guys, so who is that guy? That's Simon Stylites. What's he doing? Well, he's living on a pillar to show his devotion to Jesus. You go, really? That's it? And listen, next Tuesday at 9 o'clock, he's going to set a record for the number of times he can touch his feet with his forehead. Really? Yeah, next Tuesday. So you come into town on Tuesday. What number is he at now? 233. You go to get a pizza. Come back. What number is he at now? 733. You go watch, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You come back. Where is he? He's at 1,200. He's, and he's, he sets the record. It's just unbelievable. What good does that do? Zero. Zero. Nothing. Sometimes I think in my life, I can be sitting on the perch, getting all concerned about A, B, and C, and forgetting the gospel of grace. So I, I, I read this, and I think, may, may, may God give us a sense of 
Understanding the greatness of the meta-narrative. Number four. As I read this passage, there is a sense of urgency. Boom. Life is over. People have an eternity. See, this week we had Camp Connect. Some of you worked in it. Thank you for that. We, that this camp went from Monday to Friday, 8 to 5. 8 to 5. I don't know how they did it. I mean, that is a lot. I mean, there's more energy in this building this week. It was, it was un unbelievable. And we had Camp Connect for 325-plus kids and all these workers. All these, these college students came in, and, and this was the eighth of nine weeks they've done this in a row, eight to five, Monday to Friday with all these kids. It's amazing. Great content, great camp. People running up and down the hall, chanting things that I couldn't understand, but they were chanting things. And I, I thought, I hope these, these, these workers have a huge storeroom of Red Bull, because this is an unbelievable energy output. But let me tell you why we did Camp Connect. First of all, we did not do it because we want to give parents in our city a respite for the week. Well, that, that's okay, but that's not the primary reason. We, we did it not to give them a chance to build community and enjoy each other. That's good. The reason we did it is we believe there's only one way to be saved, and that's through the work of Jesus. And we want our children here there day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and pray that God, by His Spirit, puts, makes roots in their soul, and they believe the gospel of Jesus. We have people among us that are international workers. We have one family that's with us for months, and a medical doctor. They're now back in northern Africa. It's a tough place to be. And they do it because there's only one name given among men by which you must be saved. The name is Jesus. It's not Allah. It's Jesus. We have another medical missionary family who's here for a few months getting ready to go back to the Middle East. We have families that are here from Europe and, again, North Africa waiting to go back because there's only one name given among men by which they must be saved. There's an urgency. We have a wonderful school here called Palmetto Christian Academy. It's a lot of workers, a lot of money, a lot of energy, a lot of action. And we, 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 we have that school because we want our children to have the opportunity of going to a school where they hear that every discipline, whether it's science or math or history or English or biology, is under the lordship of Christ. To quote one of the great teachers of the 20th century, we want our children to understand that there is not one inch of all creation over which the Lord Jesus does not cry, this is mine. So we love that. And it's, 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 it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. But we do it because we want our children to know and understand and grapple with the lordship of Jesus. See, it, it gives you urgency and it gives you priorities. And so there's a quote here that I, I put in from a guy named C.S. Lewis as he wrote the Screwtape Letters and he says this, and nothing, capital N, nothing is very strong Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why. In the gratification of curiosities, so feeble that the man is only half aware of them. What he's saying is, it's not, the nothing is not 
outrageous sins that get you on the cover of, 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 of a newspaper. The, the nothing, the nothing is the fact that we just spend our days floating without any concept of eternity. It's not outlandish sins. It's just doing nothing, being consumed with nothing. Kind of like the Beatles song. Nowhere man, living in a nowhere land. That's it. Telling all his nowhere stories for nobody. Nowhere man. And we have urgency. We have a calling. We walk under the authority of the Bible that points to King Jesus. Oh, man. Okay, let's, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the urgency of the gospel. I pray for people that are in our circles of influence that do not believe the gospel, that do not walk with urgency. Uh, I pray that we would open our mouths to speak, that we would love people and care for people. Uh, I pray, Lord, that the reality of eternity would rest with weight upon our shoulders and our minds that we would not be people who are just nothing people. Not, not that we're doing horrific things. We're just kind of floating and existing. Nothing. So give us that urgency and that passion. And, and Lord, inflame our hearts. I thank you that the reality of hell arrests our attention, but only the pleadings of the cross melt an obstinate heart. So melt our hearts. Holy Spirit, by applying the glory of Jesus in whose name I pray. Amen.